You know what time it is. Time for another train wreck. Welcome to Not Another Baptist Podcast, a weekly podcast about what two pastors in New Mexico are learning in the trenches of church revitalization. I'm Matt Hensley, the pastor of May Hill Baptist, and I'm joined by... I'm Kyle Bierman, the pastor of First Baptist Church in Alamogordo, New Mexico. And we bring a combined 31 years of experience in vocational ministry, and we still haven't figured it out. Uh, So we're glad that you've tuned in to learn from our mistakes, to laugh a little bit, and enjoy some occasional chats with some key leaders in the Southern Baptist Convention. Yep. And before we talk about that, this podcast is sponsored by the Christian Standard Bible. So you could say, as we often do, that we're the official podcast of the Word of God. We love the CSB because of its blend of readability and accuracy and encourage you to check out csbible.com after the show. Well, Kyle, what is in store for us today? Uh, well, let's see. We've made trips, or, or at least through uh, through web chats, to Texas, to Georgia, to the Carolinas, to Missouri, and to Louisiana. And today it looks like we've made it to the left coast out to California. The place of my birth. That explains so much. So much for our <laughs> listeners. They just understood a lot when, when, with, with that little... Uh, Everything anger. makes sense now. Yes. All right. Anyway, back back to the task at hand. We are delighted today to welcome Dr. Jeff Orge, pres- president of Gateway Seminary, to the show. Dr. Orge, uh, say hello. Tell us a little bit about your family. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Glad to talk to you from California. Uh, well, my family. I'm married to Ann. Been married 38 years. Uh, we have three adult children. All three of them are uh, vitally engaged in ministry and Christian uh, service. So we're delighted about that. And then I have four grandchildren that are uh, perfect, frankly. And so that's our family. We're scattered from uh, Europe to the West Coast and uh, involved in all kinds of different things. But uh, my wife and I live here in Southern California and do our work from here. Awesome. Well, before we talk about Gateway and, and how you got there and all of that good stuff, I have a hard hitting question right off the bat. Okay, we there. There's a lot of talk about soteriology, whether it's Calvinism or traditionalism or something in between. There's a lot of talk about political involvement or maybe not being involved. There's a lot of entity head openings, as you know. So, so here we go: pulled pork or brisket? Uh, Always brisket. Okay, no question about it. Spoken like a true Texan, I believe. Yeah. Well, I I grew up there, and the. the lo- my love for barbecue started there, and yes, I may be the only person you know who has on his official uh, bio that one of my uh, hobbies is searching for the world's best barbecue restaurant, and the mm. quest continues day by day. Uh, I still think when when we visited the last time, I had the pleasure of visiting with you with our friends at the Potluck Podcast, and, right. and that was one of the questions or something similar uh, that I encouraged you to get out to Grand Prairie uh, during the SBC meeting, I believe, and hit up Edelman's. I don't know if you've made it there yet, but that, that still needs to be on your list. And uh, if you go back to the DFW area, and if you make it here, we've got a place called Mad Jacks uh, up in Cloudcroft of all places. Um, the yep. middle of New Mexico here, uh, that is some phenomenal 
phenomenal barbecue if you get there early enough. You might have to stand out in line at about 9.30 or 10, uh, but you can get some. And when he finds out that you're from Texas, you might be standing in line and he'll he'll hit his little spatula or his knife or whatever and be flying brisket over to you and land on your nose or wherever. He's got some pretty good aim, uh, but it's a wonderful place. Uh, but let's get back to the topic. Uh, what brought you to Gateway in the first place? Well, I was happily uh, working in the Pacific Northwest. I had moved there in 1989 to plant a church. Uh, after a number of years of doing that, I had transitioned to work for the state convention there. While I was doing that, I was teaching adjunctively for the seminary and also uh, involved in our campus that we have in the Portland area. Plus, on top of all that, I got involved with uh, the former president in some leadership uh, consultation and on a task force that he put together about some leadership issues. And so I just had a growing relationship to the seminary. And then in 2004, when uh, Dr. Bill Cruz, who was before me as president, retired, uh, the seminary trustees asked me if I would consider being president. So uh, first day I ever worked for school, I was president. I didn't really set out to do this. I, I never had this as a uh, career objective or a ministry goal or anything like that. I, uh, I was quite uh, focused on the, on my work in the Northwest, but really felt like God was leading me to do this. And it turned out uh, after looking back for the last 15 years, I think that was the right call. <laughs> now, um, now Matt and I both w will joke that we are uh, foreign missionaries from the, from the, the great state of Texas, uh, foreign missionaries serving in, uh, outside the, the Bible belt now. And, right. um, now, it would seem that, that California has some unique challenges in, in, regarding to, in regards to Christianity in general, um, and, and I would assume those probably apply to, to theological education as well. So out there now, especially that you're in Southern California, how, how do you and, and how does Gateway navigate those, those challenges unique to uh, California? Well, most of the challenges that people from uh, the South or Southeast think are real in California are myths, quite okay. honestly. Uh, California is a place of incredible opportunity for the gospel. Uh, there are several uh, incredible churches that have been built in California, multiple ministries, just start naming the ministries that have started in California. Large and influential seminaries have been in California for the last 50 years. Um, so there, there is, there's a myth that somehow, uh, California is antagonistic to the gospel or that it's super hard to be here with the gospel or that Christianity is under some kind of attack here. And really that's just simply not true. Now, there's no doubt that there are pockets of incredible resistance to the gospel here, but those pockets are also found in Dallas and Atlanta and New York city and all other places. But here, um, we don't wake up every day dreading the thought of having to be here representing the gospel or trying to grow churches or trying to build a seminary. It's, it's actually quite refreshing to know that uh, we can make a, a, a significant impact because lostness is so prevalent around us that uh, we just go after people with the gospel and, and, uh, and watch the results. And, and if, you know, if you really think about it, just think about the churches uh, that have been built here over the last 50 years and think about the schools that have been built think about the ministries national global ministries that all started in southern california and you can see that uh, uh, that this is really uh, a, a, an, an awesome place to be for the gospel now quite honestly northern california and portland uh, were more challenging places than southern california uh, because the 
the culture there is uh, is is uh, is more aggressive about the liberalism and more aggressive about the lostness and how it's presented. But uh, Southern California is awesome. I think what he just said, Kyle, was that you are fake news. <laughs> that's that's not the first time, and it probably won't be the last time. <laughs> I, I wouldn't go that far. I mean, you know, obviously, there's things about California that are that are significantly challenging, but. But they're not, they're not obstacles to the gospel's advance. I mean, the gospel goes forward in every context, in every culture, in every setting, and there's not any reason why it can't go forward here. I mean, have, so. have, have those myths that, that, I mean, we just mentioned, and, and you, know, you pointed out as myths, have those created any challenges to, to your work there in Southern California? Yeah, the people that live here would say no, but it's really, it's really uh, sad because when I travel in the South or Southeast, I often hear, uh, I often hear a couple of things that, that are discouraging to us. One is people say, well, if you're in California, you must be liberal mm. because if you're there, you, you had to, you've had to compromise in order to survive. And that, and that's just so wrong. And it's such an insult to Christians in the West who are faithful to the, to the Lord and to the word. And the second thing that's sometimes discouraging is when people say, well, you know, the only people who are in the West who people who really just couldn't cut it in the South or, or couldn't get, you know, jobs in the South. And, I always just laugh and think about like, I'm sorry, Rick Warren couldn't get a job in the South, but you know, he, he managed to do okay out here. And, you know, there's just dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of people out here that are so incredibly capable of leading and they could lead anywhere in the world. And yet they, they choose to do so in the West. And so, you know, those two myths are discouraging to us sometimes, but when you live here, uh, you realize that the, the things about the West that make it so invigorating in terms of ministry are, are simply that there is no Christian subculture and there's no, there's no cultural Christianity. And so, as my son said once to me when he was in high school, uh, you know, he was the only Christian on his hundred person football team in high school. And he wow. said, dad, you know, dad, I asked him one time, would, do you ever wish that you'd grown up in the South where there are a lot more Christians and larger churches? And he said, uh, no, dad, not ever. And he goes, and, and he said this, he made this statement, dad, if you're a Christian in Oregon, you are because you want to be, there's mm -hmm. no other reason. And there, you know, there, there's no, there, there's no cultural reason to be a Christian in the West. You just either want to be one or you don't. And that makes it pretty refreshing actually to do ministry. And that, that's been my favorite, favorite, favorite part of New Mexico is, yeah. is it's no longer just what you do on, on Sunday or whatever. You're finding people that, you know, right. where we live are 90 to 95% lostness. And uh, so it's a, it is a mission field. And, and we joke about being foreign missionaries uh, out of the great nation of Texas or whatever, but in a sense, it does seem like we really are. And it's a wonderful thing. And like you said, said it is invigorating uh, yeah. for sure. Uh, one, one of my favorite questions that we ask uh, the, the entity leaders that, that come on uh, with us is this one. Uh, what, what has been a challenge that you or maybe Gateway has faced where you can look back and, and the only words that you can really say are just, wow, you know, thank you, God. Like this is something that God has so clearly orchestrated and done that you just got out of the way and you just can look back and say, you know, thank you, Jesus, for what you have done. What, what would be one of those at Gateway? Well, there's only one, and that is uh, the, the whole process of relocating the seminary. Uh, I mean, we, we moved one of the 10 largest seminaries in the country 400 miles, and we did it with absolute unity and with unbelievable, miraculous intervention by God. And 
you know, I wrote the book leading major change in your ministry. And, and that tells the story of the seminary's relocation. But in that book, I have a chapter called the seven miracles. And, you know, we don't use that word lightly, especially around the academy and around faculty and all of that. But, you know, we, we have seven categories of uh, miraculous activity or seven miracle stories that, that happened for us that, uh, that really were supernatural interventions by God to help us accomplish this project. And, you know, we, we did face uh, in, incredible opposition to redevelopment of our campus. And after a multi-year legal battle in the Bay Area, we lost. And not just a legal battle, but a political battle and a public relations battle as well. And so when the opportunity uh, came to sell the seminary and move, uh, it was, uh, I mean, you understand the seminary was never listed for sale. We never contacted a broker. We never put the property up for sale. A person walked on to, into my office and offered to buy the property and to buy all the existing development rights and expiring uh, uh, entitlements with no strings attached about the future. And so that uh, that that moved us down the path. But there's that was just the first of seven uh, incredible moments in our lives where God, you know, brought us together and and moved us. And when I say move the seminary, I mean most people think, well, how do you move a library or how do you, you know, move a, a, a faculty program or how do you move a classroom? And that's, that's, that's just so easy. That's one phone call. That's nothing. Moving the seminary involved um, dozens and dozens and dozens of families, both students, faculty and staff, their spouses all quit their jobs. They all left their churches. They took, they all took their kids out of their schools. Uh, some, I can't even describe to you the sacrifices people made and uh, they came together and, and we picked up a seminary uh, and moved it 400 miles. And I think about that. I don't know where it's 400 miles is from you, but that would be like uh, probably Amarillo or something like that, or maybe even farther. I don't know, but that's what it's like. And we did that. And I'm, I'm sitting here today, uh, four and a half years after the announcement of the move. And I've never received an email, a text, a phone call, or a visit from any current employee or student expressing opposition to the relocation god gave us a hundred percent unity and when you start thinking about special needs children that had to be taken out of their programs and moved to southern california and start over you think about spouses that had six-figure incomes in the bay area and the medical profession and in other communities that walked away from those jobs to come with the seminary um i could just go on and on and on about what it was like but we look back on that and, you know, I wrote a book about it. Obviously, there were some leadership things we did that facilitated the relocation. But we also have a strong sense that apart from God's intervention, it, it couldn't have happened. And when you look back on what what happened, it uh, it's like nothing that I'd ever experienced, although I've been a part of relocating other ministries and building other facilities and doing things like that. Uh, this was on a scale and scope that was really uh, unprecedented and it's never been done in American Christianity. And one of the most interesting things about that is no one in Christian media cared. Hmm. And you know why they didn't care? Because we didn't have a fight. Hmm. We never had one story about the real, we moved the 10th, one of the 10 largest seminaries in America. We moved it 400 miles with no disruption. We were closed for only five weeks in the summer of the move. Uh, we net, we built two brand new campuses in California, one in Southern California, one in Northern California. We wound up with $30 million left over that we added to our endowment, doubling our endowment. And, uh, we did that with absolute unity, no loss of enrollment, 
and we never made, uh, except for Baptist Press, never picked up, no, no one cared. And that really, uh, that really showed us something, and that is uh, the Christian community in America really is uh, thriving on scandal and difficulty and turmoil, but they don't even notice when God does a miracle. So it was really sad to say that that happened, but nonetheless, uh, we know the miracles happened, we know the story, and we know how profound it changed our school and how, how much it changed our people. So it's been, it's been amazing to watch that happen. I'm sure one one of the things you would share along those lines that that prayer obviously would would all of that was bathed in prayer. Um, give us maybe a short synopsis of a, a leadership principle that maybe somebody that's listening in that might find themselves in in the need to maybe move, sell, or or whatever it might be that might be facing some public resistance or might be facing their own uh, congregation's resistance. What, uh, aside from prayer, um, we, we can't emphasize that enough, but aside from, from prayer, how, how would you lead through a move of a church or a ministry uh, that a listener might be listening in that could help from? Well, uh, you know, I just, like I said, just wrote a 300 page book about it. So it's hard to pick out one thing, but I give you, I give you one or two. Uh, the first thing I would say is that I've moved or relocated or transitioned four ministries in 35 years. And each time that's happened, there's something that's occurred that I call a signal, S-I-G-N-A-L, a signal event. And a signal event is a supernatural experience that God uh, brings into a ministry organization or brings into a church, which, which really signals to everyone it's time to do this particular move or relocation or transition or change. And in each instance um, that, I've, that I've done this, there's been a signal event. And for us, the signal event at the relocation was when the person walked into my office and offered to give me $100 million for the, for the campus. Um, that, that was not something that any of us could have created. It was something that only God could have done. And when I told that story to our board and later to our faculty and staff and students, uh, there was a a holy sense of hush that almost came on the room, God has intervened. And so people often ask me, how did you get the people to unify? And I say, you know, I didn't. I mean, God unified them by doing something so dramatic that he gave a signal, it's time to go. And I could give other illustrations of that, but one of the hardest things in leadership to do sometimes is to wait until God's timing is right, until God gives a signal to go forward. And then the second thing I would say is when you're managing a, 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 or leading through a very significant a change like this, uh, you need to learn the difference as a leader between change and transition. And those are two very different things. There's whole field, there's whole, there's whole uh, uh, groups of literature and books and everything that have been written on these two things and how they're not the same. And quite honestly, most Christian leaders focus too much on change and not enough on transition management. And that's sad because we are uniquely equipped to be great transition leaders, but we just don't know that until because we've been taught that uh, leading change is, is uh, it, it, we've been taught how to lead change, but we've not really acknowledged what it means to lead transition. So that's a, that's a long, uh, that's a complicated and complex issue to, to, to talk about in a short podcast. But, but if you can look for a signal event and learn the difference between change and transition and really study how to do both of those, then I think you can lead these kind of major changes more effectively. Well, Matt and I both know that, that you've been in the pulpit um, a few more times than we have. Uh, 
And so one, one of the things we like to ask uh, seasoned preachers is you're, you're, you're just saying I'm old. And I'm no, that's what it sounded like to me. I, I, didn't, I didn't write it. You have 31 years combined. Dude, I got more than that by myself. So you're right. I am old, old, man. So, so with experience, right, comes um, prob- probably some memorable yeah. moments. And so yeah. uh, we, we like to ask, we like to ask uh, those who've preached a lot, you know, what is the yeah. most embarrassing moment you've had while preaching? Oh, I've got two of them. I've got two of them. Share them both. The first one was my second sermon. So context, my first sermon that I ever preached, uh, something remarkable happened. I, I preached my message. I gave an invitation and there was a significant public response, uh, startling to me and humbling in some ways, but nevertheless, very real. So um, I was asked to preach a few weeks later at a different church and my second sermon. Now, by this time, I've preached once and I've proven that I'm God's gift of preaching because of the fabulous response. And so I worked up my second sermon and I went there and preached. And I preached the whole sermon in about eight minutes. And so I decided to do what everyone would do. And that is I preached it again. And the second time through, it took me about six minutes. So now I'm up to about 14 or 15 minutes. And so not knowing what else to do, but knowing I needed to fill the time, I preached it again. (laughs) And the third time through, it took me about three minutes. And so I preached my sermon through about three times in less than 20 minutes. And I sat down completely humiliated. And then they had an ice cream thing after the service. And so I stayed for that because I felt like I had to. And this little old lady comes up to me on a walker and she puts her hand out, you know, kind of crippled hand and she's got her fingers kind of crooked over. And I reached out to, to take her hand. And when I did, she slipped something into my hand and it was a, it turned out to be a $20 bill. And she looks at me and she says, young man, it's young men like you who give old ladies like me a hope for when Dr. Graham is no longer with us. <laughs> and I wanted to have the ground open up and swallow me in that moment because I was so embarrassed by my stupid sermon, my arrogant attitude, And the fact that this dear little lady was giving me a 20 and calling me the next Billy Graham, it was one of the worst experiences of my life. And I'll tell you how bad it was. God did not let me speak in front of people for a a year after that. I did not get another invitation. Now, I've preached about probably six or 7,000 times since then. And I want to tell you, um, I've preached some bad sermons and I've done some dumb things, but I have never, ever been as arrogant as I was at that second sermon. God just busted my hide. That was a bad day. So that was a bad day. Okay, so here's another one. So I was preaching at a church that had a choir. And I'm pretty fired up when I'm getting ready to preach. You know, I'm I'm in the moment. I'm ready to go. And I I think the, 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 the most important minute of a message are the first 30 seconds that you start and the last 30 seconds that you end. And I think you've got to get those exactly right. And so I am, I'm primed. I've got my, my, my first 30 seconds memorized. I'm ready to start the message. Um, I'm sitting on the edge of my seat on the platform, ready to go. And the choir is singing. Now I'm not a musician, so you'll have to bear with me, but they're singing, you know, and they're going through their song and it's a beautiful song. And all of a sudden they go, and they stop. And I think, boom. 
and I stand up and I take about four strides to the pulpit like I'm going to deliver the, you know, and I get about halfway to the pulpit and I realize, and, I, and the choir hits the downbeat and starts up again. And I realized <laughs> that this was not the end of their song. This was just gonna, some kind of musical pause or something written into the music. So I'm standing there literally with one foot in the air, kind of frozen between the pulpit and the seat that I've left with this choir behind me just cracking up laughing and they're trying not to laugh and they're trying to sing and the audience has lost it and i'm just sort of freeze frame there like something out of a out of a roadrunner cartoon or something you know and i just stood there like a statue while they finished their song and then i kind of creeped back over and sort of sat down a little bit and waited till the applause and all of the laughter died down and then i went to the pulpit and i don't remember those first 30 seconds of the pulpit of the message that day because it was <laughs> It was not what I had planned, but yeah, that, that really happened. I was, uh, I was a bad moment, but that was a funny one. The first one was just humiliating. The second one was just funny. So, you know, stuff like that happens. It's good times. Uh, I will say that my folks, if you could still preach three sermons in 20 minutes, they would hire you in about five seconds. <laughs> that, that's kind of the ongoing thing with ours. So oh, <laughs> the, awesome. my, my mom turns off my sermons at the 25 minute mark. She said, if you can't say it in 25 minutes, I don't need to hear it. Uh, but, uh, but so thank you for that. Those, those one humiliating, uh, one certainly funny. And, yeah. uh, I think we've all been there either stood up a little too soon or, uh, you know, I, we, we shared a meme the other day of, uh, you know, when, when you think, you know, you're about to belt out the next line of the verse or the chorus or whatever it might be in a song and you're about half a beat too soon and yeah. just, you know, ah, whatever it is. And yeah. then everybody comes, those, those kind of moments are, are what make ministry just so, so fun. They are. <laughs> for sure. Uh, but uh, back, back to Gateway just for a uh, moment as we begin yeah. to wind down. Uh, what is God up to right now? You've talked about the move. You talked about some of that in, in the past, how, how he was faithful th uh, through all of that. What is God up to right now at Gateway that you want our folks to listen about, hear about? Well, we have been here now two full years and we started our third year. So we've sort of reached what we call a new normal. And our focus is now entirely on our mission and training people, sending them around the world, doing what we do. But one of the new things we've launched uh, in the last year or so is called the Chinese English Bilingual Program. And it's a uh, Mandarin-based program, but the students need conversational English, of course, to be able to navigate the seminary. Uh, and we are really building a network in Southern California, particularly of Chinese pastors. We had about 80 pastors from the greater Los Angeles area uh, in our building on Monday of this week. We're also networking in Taiwan, Singapore, mainland China, all kinds of places. Uh, and we are, we are anticipating that we will be able to build a remarkable program that's going to make a significant difference in the Chinese church globally in the years to come. So that's sort of the newest thing happening here. And the thing that we, uh, you know, again, signal event, God, God gave us a very large gift to help us get that started. And We've been praying about it for several years. That gift never came and then boom, it did. And so we pulled the trigger. We're making this happen. So that's the newest thing and most recent way that God has really intersected our school. Uh, but it's, it's just uh, in some ways back to normal here, business as usual, which is for us pretty exciting stuff, training people for the global mission of the gospel. But uh, the Chinese English program, that's the newest thing and the most exciting new thing that God is doing at Gateway. All right. And so as, as these things are, are coming up, um, how can we and how can our listeners be, be praying for you and and for the, uh, well, really our Gateway family as, as yeah. Southern Baptists? 
Hey, well, hey, prayer is the first thing, but there's three things you can do, and every seminary president will tell you the same thing. Number one, pray for us. Um, it is a spiritual battle every day, every day. Uh, spiritual warfare is real. The devil is real, and we face uh, obstacles here, but those are the same obstacles everybody else faces. So I'm not trying to say we're, we're, it's any worse or different here. It's just it's, it's just bad. Uh, it's just a bad spiritual time uh, in so many ways in America. And we just need to be diligent and vigilant about what we're doing. And then send the students, man. That's the second thing you can do. If you know somebody wants to train for ministry outside the Bible Belt, uh, come see us. And then last thing, uh, you know, find ways to support us and primarily do that through the cooperative program. Uh, and I just, you know, I've, I've said this a thousand times, other places, I'm not just giving a commercial. It's a real thing. There wouldn't be a, a gateway seminary without the cooperative program. I mean, mm -hmm. if Southern Baptists in the West had been responsible for building this seminary, it, it would have been done so much more slowly because the resource base here in the 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s was just so much smaller. You know, now it's a different story. Now we have some large giving churches in the West and we're grateful for that. But but if it weren't for the cooperative program and God's grace, there wouldn't be a gateway seminary. So just keep doing what you do, guys. Pray for us, send us students and Keep, you know, supporting what Southern Baptists do globally through the CP, and that helps us every every month here at Gateway. Awesome. And we're going to put a link in the show notes to the book you've uh, mentioned. So so those that may be facing some changes in their their churches or wanting to lead out in, in transitions and in changes uh, that maybe they can uh, look up that and, and sure. uh, buy that and add it to their uh, thousand, two thousand, five thousand, ten thousand uh, book library, and that that reminds me of the one question I failed to ask you, and and okay. so it can be real quick. How how many books are in your library? Oh, not very many. I I've been giving them away, honestly. Okay. Uh, I have a I have a I just gave away five more boxes last week out of my library, uh, I, and the reason I'm giving it away is because I don't need it. I I work uh, within very short walking distance of the second largest theological library in the Western United States. And so it just seemed fruit. It seemed unwise to me. So I'm giving my books away. I just recently gave five, five books of commentaries off my shelves to uh, pastors in Wyoming. Uh, I'm just giving them away to places that don't have access because I can walk down the hall and it's just not. So I'm not a library builder. I okay. have, uh, and I also buy almost all electronic books and have bought those for years. And so I, I wouldn't know how many of those I have, but I can't give those away. But all my paper ones, I'm just giving them away. Well, I'm, I'm texting you my uh, address right now, but as, as much as I don't want to, it is time to hop off the train until next time. We're grateful that you took the time to listen in today. And if you haven't, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you enjoy your podcast. And if you like what you heard, lay down a five-star review so we keep these things coming. You can visit us online at www.notanotherbaptistpodcast.com or on Facebook under Not Another Baptist Podcast or on Twitter at NAB underscore podcast. Thanks, Dr. Orge and Kyle. Send us out. Until next time, may your coffee be as black as night and as bold as the gospel you declare. I'm so glad you got it right this time, Kyle. Thank you. Dr. Orge, thank you so much. We're praying for you. We love you guys and have a wonderful day. Thanks, guys.